Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I talk with my friend, Dr. Barbara Carapa. Barbara is a professor in the Department of Geosciences as well as the department chair. She's done geology in some really cool places, including the Himalaya, the Central Andes, the Pamir, and also the Western U.S. Welcome to Plucky Ladies, Barbara. Thank you, Jess. Um, It's a pleasure for me to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad to talk with you. Um, So one of the things I want to talk about is your background a little bit because you are European. Mm -hmm. Um, You grew up in Italy Mm -hmm. and did your undergraduate in Italy and then moved to Amsterdam to do your PhD. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about where did you grow up in Italy? So I grew up in the northern side of Italy near Milan, just southwest of Milan. So close to the mountain, in the pl- in the plains, but uh, close enough to the mountains that I could see them. Yeah. Um, and I basically grew up uh, in this little town that is just a, a outside of Milan uh, until I was about 24 when I moved away. Yeah. And I never came back. Never came back. <laughs> <laughs> I go back regularly, but, you know, I just, I just left for for school and, yeah. and other things. So, um, yeah, I grew up uh, in this in this 50,000 people uh, town. Um, it was actually great. And I, I have to say that I now that I go back, I appreciate it even more than when I was living there, right? That's normal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When you leave in a place and you spend a lot of time uh, at a certain, you know, in a certain environment, you really don't appreciate all the things that you actually I have the have. same experience and now I hometown. go back yeah. and I feel like oh my gosh this is beautiful yeah. and there's hills everywhere and vineyards and the sea is only the Mediterranean is about an hour and a half away oh, the wow. mountains uh, to the north so the Mont Blanc for example yeah. uh, is about an hour and a half away so oh, wow. France is an hour and a half away so <laughs> <laughs> it's not like the wow. US you know in about two hours you're in a lot of different places. Sure. So, yeah, I was spoiled, and I, I had the opportunity to enjoy all these different environments, the mountains, the sea, and yeah. travel to different places in Europe. And when, when you said, you know, I could see the mountains, is mm-hmm. that something that influenced your um, interest in geology? Do you remember like being intrigued by them from a young age oh yeah yeah because yeah. um so my parents actually are not uh from the place where i actually was born my mom is from lake como which is to oh, the north wow. of milan my dad is from the deep south puglia which is the end of the booth oh, of italy okay uh, so very two very different environments the northern so I, I again i was lucky to spend my summers off uh, in the mountains at the lake mm-hmm. and is they're right there so i uh since a, a young age i I used to hike and, and in the mountains, so that was kind of part of um, my upbringing, but also go down south and enjoy the Mediterranean Sea, so I had both um, experiences, but the mountains are always there, and the beauty of the mountain for me has always been like a key um, attraction. Yeah. I always felt like they're they're just so beautiful, not just from a natural point of view, from an artistic point of view, so when I when I'm stressed and I'm not unhappy, I, I tend to just go for hikes and just sure. go away. And, sure. and that's the place where I can find peace. And yeah. so that's just a very natural place for me to be. How did your parents end up meeting? They're from such different places. <laughs> yeah, so my mom um, grew up at Lake Como in a little tiny village. And my dad was actually in uh, in the army. And so oh. he was uh, basically um, stationed in uh, Como. 
And the story is that she was on a bicycle and it was late in the evening and it was getting dark and her lights didn't work and he stopped her. What? Yeah. To get, she was in trouble. Well, he stopped her to just say, hey, your light is not on. Like when you see a police, you know, when yeah. a police uh, person just stops you because your, your, your light's on, on the car yeah, is not working. not working. And so I think that maybe that was a little bit of an excuse, but, um, but yeah, <laughs> so that's what her. happened <laughs> because, you know, then my grandparents had a restaurant at the lake. And so my mom used to work there when she was young. And so my dad used to go there. So I think she, he kind of knew where she who was. Who she was, sure. And who she was. And so uh, it was probably set up. But yeah, that's the story. And that yeah. started from there. So she the was, rest is history. Was she a lot younger than he was? Yeah, yeah. ten years. Ten years. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, good for your dad. Yeah, <laughs> he's lucky. Although he looks very much younger than his age, so is yeah. Okay. Now at least, but I back think, in the days, I think that's an Italian thing. Yeah, that you marry older. No, or, no, no. That or, you look younger oh. <laughs> than you are because my the Italian side of my family, which is my father's uh-huh. side. I always felt like that was the case. And I know people in my life now who are Italian who look so young. I'm like, what is something about the Italian blood? Definitely for my dad. My, my mom looks looks young, too. So yeah. they, they look healthy. And they're, yeah. they're healthy. I think it's part of the diet and the way of living, which yeah. is sometimes a little different. But yeah. yeah. So, so what did they do for work? As When you were growing up, you talk about hiking and mm-hmm, going to the lake, mm-hmm. which was a part of you finding the mountains and mm-hmm, wanting to do mm-hmm. that. Was there science going on in your you house? Know, my, actually, my parents are not scientists at all. Yeah. They, uh, however, they always valued education. Sure. And so um, they they were not they didn't have the same opportunities I had and so they really I'm first generation so they didn't go to college mm-hmm. um, but they worked very hard to put me and my brother in through college because they understood the value of, of education um, so I think that the scientific part just came from my curiosity I've always been sort of a into exploring new things and yeah. I was totally into space exploration when I was a little, oh, little wow. kid I remember following the space shuttle missions yeah. all the time and I was totally excited about that side of science and and I love math I know this sounds like being a geek but I just <laughs> loved it yeah uh, it was challenging for me it was kind of a game and I always liked it um, so it was kind of natural for me. I always and since I was, I still remember six years old. People would ask me, and I, I will say, I'll, I'll be a scientist. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it's so interesting to me because you know I grew up with non-scientist parents, and I never even considered huh? being a scientist because I didn't see anyone around me doing science, and I thought it was hard and all of that stuff. Um, but a lot of women I've had in here who are scientists have this similar story of finding it at a young age, and it came out of some curiosity they yeah. had that either. Um, and it wasn't necessarily because their parents were scientists, but there was something their parents fostered in taking them hiking or taking mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. to the ocean or taking them. And it led to this curiosity that brought them to science. It's such a common theme, yeah. that curiosity. Curiosity is at the, at the source of science. Yeah. You, you know, and, and everyone has it, right? I mean, sure. if, um, if you listen to Carl Sagan, he has a beautiful interview describing how old kids, you know, are very curious and how different they are from adults. And when you get to about 11 to 14, you somehow lose it. And so there is a problem in our society on how to keep the curiosity going. And yeah. I don't know what the, the solution to that problem is. But yeah, it's something that, that, that we all have, some more than others, but you know, yeah. it's, it's right there. And so that's why it's so sure easy to teach kids and get them excited, right, about right. science, because right. they're so, 
so excited about it. Yeah, and I don't think curiosity doesn't necessarily have to just be about science, right? Right, I mean, right. It can be kids, about a anything. lot of things. Anything, that's right. Something anything about fostering that curiosity yeah. in your in your kids, whatever it might be, right. instead of, um, you know, maybe well, the rule is, or this is what you have to do for school, but allowing kids to explore those things that are interesting to them and maybe sparking that curiosity. Yeah. So you say you left at 24. Where Mm -hmm. did you go? Uh, I went to Amsterdam for my PhD. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, uh, you know, it was a little different than than in the U.S. in the sense that here you apply for graduate school and then you go through a process and, you know, just go through an interview and then then eventually... uh, you get accepted or not at yeah. different schools. Um, we kind of, I, I went through the same process, but I already had a project. So they oh. basically advertised the project and they were looking for a student with specific set of skills. And so it's it's a little more, it was a little more sort of organized or, or yeah. you know, there was not as much freedom. But nevertheless, you know, I, I, it was a project that I was very interested in and it was in line with the master project that I did when I was in Italy. Um, So my undergraduate studies um, uh, included five years of undergraduate education, but of those five years, one and a half years at the end are basically the equivalent of our master. So I had a thesis and a project and everything else. And so um, this opportunity came up and there was just basically this advertisement about this project in my university, uh, just in the corridor. And I just applied oh wow and then I got an interview and of course you have to you know send all your your um, transcripts and everything else and I got an interview and I flew to Amsterdam I remember and it was the first time I was in Amsterdam in my entire life yeah Um, and that was it so I got the the position and I moved and uh, spent four years four year and a half half in in Amsterdam Uh, and then I moved to Berlin for my postdoc and then I spent another four years and a half so what is different about the European system? Like I think of, when I think of Europe, I think of it, and maybe I'm wrong, but is there more sort of ability to, to specialize earlier as an undergrad? Like when you start college, if you know you want to do science, is that what you're doing pretty Absolutely. much? Yeah. Yes. Actually, I should say from your high school. Really? Yeah, years. And so that's kind of like my my sort of uh, path to eventually end up in science was not as straight as I originally thought when I was six years old, it was clear I was going to be a scientist. But then um, for my high school, actually, I wanted to do, you know, in Italy, you have different kind of high schools, and they're very specialized. So you have the science high school, you have the kind of humanities high school, you have the business high school, you have a lot, yeah, a business high school. Yeah, a lot of our students at U of A would love that. (laughs) So many of them want to go to Eller. Uh, Architecture, you know, there is a lot of, or design, so there is a lot of different uh, options, and so you you do tend to specialize early on. Mm. And the problem there is that if you don't know what you want to do is a problem. If you do know what you want to do, then it's, you know, then then it's potentially easier. In my case, I I knew exactly what I wanted to do, but some of my parents were like, well, you know, you may change your mind after five years of high school, and if you decide not to go to college, then if you go into the scientific high school, that is really a high school that is uh, you're, you're preparing. On a track. Yeah, yeah. Pre- is preparing you for college. But if you stop, you don't have necessarily a lot of skills to get a sure, job. Sure. And so, uh, you know, in a way, they I don't know if they didn't trust me or they w- it was more like a pragmatic decision based yeah. on their upbringing, and so they sort of enrolled me. In, a, in the business high school. No. 
I never would have guessed. So I had no choice. I mean, the choice would have been in a, a year after they enrolled me. It was too late when I basically find, found out. And I still, in a way, am a little mad. Although when I bring it up, they say, well, you did just fine, so that's okay, right? Yeah. But yeah. It, it, nevertheless, <laughs> it's five years of, of, of a different kind of path that I, I would have done something different. But um, so they enrolled me, and, and it was too late for me to change. Uh, for, for me to change, I would have just had to go through that year and then change and then miss a year basically because the other high school has a completely different program so did and you were you so, miserable um uh, you know i mean i uh, there were sort of fields that i loved more than others which yeah. were which was math although yeah, it was yeah. very different than, than the math that you will do in the other high school sure. because it's more statistical based yeah. and in and um the classics, literature, and, 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 and Italian, which I've always liked, too, so I always liked writing. So I was like both writing and um, and science. And so I kind of concentrated on those fields, even though obviously in the business high school, the other fields are sort of more, you know, yeah. important. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say miserable, but it was not ideal. So I just, but I knew that that was something that I had to go through and just get a de- degree and just move on. And so that's what I did. But So what was your thesis if you were in the business type school or that's your undergraduate that's high school that no, was that's just high school. school and then okay. I just started undergraduate and then I you know when I started geology to go back to your question yeah so it's very different than here in the sense that you don't have any any of these other classes that you can take right um so it's just geoscience classes from day one foundational science too all foundational science yes math and that that is it and nothing else and so five years of that and um so the first couple of years were tough because all the math and chemistry and physics and i didn't really have much of a background but um but after that it was just yeah so do you do you have an opinion on what you think is better the way we do it or the way they do <laughs> I don't know. I would have liked to have maybe more freedom to take some elective classes that, that are just sort of that you're interested in just because you're interested in. So maybe uh, something in between. Yeah. I think that uh, that the American system is, 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 I think, is good for people who, uh, who somehow have some organizational skills and they know eventually where they want to go. But it's really, I think, easy to get lost in the sure. system because they allow you to take so many different things and you know so it's kind of I think there are pro and cons in, in, in both yeah. uh, in both systems and I think that um, I mean go if I had to go back I think I would just probably do the same though I feel like my preparation was I had a great education for yeah. geoscience and it, I was well prepared to, to go on so sure. I, I don't feel like I missed anything fundamental yeah. except for maybe taking cl- a class in uh, philosophy Sure, <laughs> something that interested something you outside, yeah. yeah, which is mm-hmm. a great benefit of our type Absolutely. of education. Yes. But I do um, recognize that for students, it can be. I, I see this a lot in our students where mm-hmm. there's so many options, right. and they sometimes have a hard time just picking something or right. landing on right. something because, Absolutely. well, I really enjoy this, but I know business will get me a job. But I really enjoy my yeah. this class, so what do I do? And then in the end creates yeah, yeah I mean it seems like because you have a lot of options sometimes you feel like yeah you have more freedom but somehow it complicates your life I I remember so when I moved to this country I went to do shopping at a supermarket and the number of cereal boxes <laughs> were just so 
unbelievable overwhelming overwhelming like yeah. it just took me two hours to go through all the cereal boxes and to <laughs> this date i only buy the same two types yes, of cereals, cereals right? right so it just took me two hours to figure out that at the end of the day the two that i really like are just the same one yeah but uh and the same with i remember i remember just um the uh the washing machine the, you know the the, the wash, setting, the setting, yeah. no, not the setting, the the soap for the washing machine. It's oh, the same okay. thing, you know, yeah. all the different kind of types that you have. And yeah. in, your, in Europe, you have like four or five, and yeah. that's about it. Yeah. And so it's kind of an interesting process, and it's sort of translating to education to have all these different options, and then and sometimes that can be confusing. Well, and on the one hand, it seems so great, like we have all this freedom, we can do whatever we want, and then on the other hand, you think of how it can clutter your mind a little bit if there's too many choices and too many options and then if you don't have them you feel like something's been taken away from you exactly but at the same time like wouldn't it be great to be able to focus on a couple of things that you're really good at or something right and spend your time on that um but I want to talk about the work that you ended up doing Mm -hmm. so okay tell me about your um the project that landed you the PhD what did you do in your undergrad that got you there? Yeah, so my master project, um, so I, again, within my undergrad, you have tracks like like we have in our department, and so I, I uh, was on a track on sedimentology and paleontology, if you can believe it. Um, and my project was to look at the product of erosion from the Alps okay. uh, that ended up in the in the basin, so the poplain, the sedimentary basin just close to the Alps, uh, back to... 30 million years ago. So mm-hmm. I was just looking at sedimentary rocks uh, and tried to reconstruct their provenance where and they came understand from. where they, they came from, how they got there, uh, and the tectonics basically of the Alps and what drove basically erosion and eventually deposition in the sedimentary basin. So it was mostly a sedimentology oriented basin uh, project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned a lot of useful skills that I used late, later on in my for my PhD. So for my P, for for my PhD, they were looking for someone with experience in sedimentary basins. There you go. Um, and someone who will do tectonics at a larger scale but still related to the Alps. Mm-hmm. And so it was a is a kind of a natural follow up into the project. Um, yeah. So I was lucky to, that they were looking specifically for someone um, that had that sort of sk- the skills. And yeah. so um yeah, so my project for my PhD was basically applying a different kind of techniques, a little bit more sophisticated, which is geochronology. And I did argon-argon on geochronology on, on uh, phyllosilicates from, again, sedimentary rocks to reconstruct at this time the timing of erosion. So yeah. it's still the process of erosion and sedimentation, but yeah. um, but I was, I was more quantitative in the sense that I yeah. actually... Um, could measure really the timing of erosion of the material um, before it ended up into the basin. So that was, yeah, yeah. and then I did a a fair amount of basin analysis and basin modeling, so large-scale type um, analysis of, again, the foreland basin um, of the Alps. So I, even though I moved away and I was in Amsterdam, I, I, my field work was in Italy. Oh, wow. Okay, so, so you got to go back. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I want to back up a little, because for people listening who aren't geologists, there's a lot of jargon right. that just came. And, I know. Um, so and I, I like tried to, to simplify it. No, it never like, works. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think that it's worth saying, you know, um, I don't think people understand when they see mountains mm-hmm. always that, number one, that those are being built over long periods of time by tectonics, which right. are these big pieces of earth that move around and right. they smash into mm-hmm. each other and do all these things. But in addition, so what you were doing when you're thinking about erosion, 
um, you know, this is a process where the mountains are breaking down over time Correct. in yeah. response to wind and water and, and all of those things. And that those little pieces of rock end up, they move, they transport, right. they're eroded, and they go through streams or other mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. And they end up in these depressions next to the mountains that are right. called basins. Mm-hmm. And so we can actually go into the basins, take those sediments and rocks out, and kind of reverse the movie and go Correct. backwards and say, well, Correct. wait a minute, how old are they? When were the mountains tall? When were they eroding? How fast were they eroding? And all of those things tell us something about these earth processes, right. the rates at which they happen, temperature conditions, right? Um, right? Were the rocks deformed? You know, have they been changed over time? So for for the non-geologists listening, this is like all of the different types of geology that we do. And when you said geochronology, that's mm-hmm. looking, you know, putting dates and numbers on things. Right. How many millions of years ago did this happen? That we're actually recreating earth stories that no one was around to see. Correct. And this is all so important if we mm-hmm. want to understand how our earth is working today. Right. We go back in time and we reconstruct mm-hmm. these stories and then we can sort of play them out yeah, in real time. That's why geosciences, I think, is so um, exciting as a science uh, yeah. because it allows you to really travel not just back in time but look at different planets really it's right. just looking at different places the earth was very different 50 million years ago 100 million years ago a billion year ago yeah continents were in different place the climate was very different right. so um, it's just really taking a trip into a different planet yeah. and, and time. So it's, it's it's a fascinating It's one of the things I love about thing. geology, yeah. too, is that you're, you're really piecing together a story. It is mm-hmm. a story, but it's a story that's not made up. It's recorded right. <laughs> in the rocks. Exactly. <laughs> it's just reconstructing what happened. You know, sometimes for people who are non-scientists or even kids, you know, to understand um, what, what it means to actually look at the product, as I, I, was, as I was saying, of erosion, as you explained it, is almost like if you want to understand the history of a person, the best way to do it is to look into its, the trash of that person. Right. The trash can. That's right. Over a long period of time. Right. Longer direct record, better your understanding of, of this person is sure. going to be because you yeah. can go back in That's time right. and figure out the behavior of this person. What was what did he or they she eat? Was eating, what were they getting you know, in the mail? Doing. Exactly. Yeah. And the timing is just really like figuring out the expiration age of your, you know, milk. Yeah. Uh, sure. Box. Sure. That gives you a <laughs> so date. You find exactly. a milk carton with an right? expiration date, exactly. and you go, "Oh, they were drinking milk at this mm-hmm. time." You're exactly right. I never thought about it that way. But it's funny you bring that up because now there are scientists, geologists who, um, you know, are working on this idea of what we call the Anthropocene, right? right? This Mm -hmm. new era that is defined by man's impact on the planet. And one of the ways they've talked about marking it is garbage in the geologic record, which marks humans Mm -hmm. doing things like creating plastics and making lots of trash. It's so true. Yeah. It's such a funny (laughs) analogy. so you mentioned geochronology. Mm-hmm. This is a big part of the work that you do mm-hmm. now. Um, I was also a geochronologist right. when I was working yes. on my PhD. And I've talked a little bit on the show before about um, the way that we do geochronology, mm-hmm. which can be very complicated and right, confusing. Right, right. But give us a little summary, like a kind of a, you know, a brief synopsis of one of the ways that you do geochronology. You mm-hmm. mentioned Argon-Argon, but I know you, also you're big into fish and track, which mm-hmm. I think some people would be really interested to hear about what is that? What is fission and how do we use it to figure out an age? Right. Yeah. So um, fish and track is based on the natural uh, decay of uranium-238, which yeah. is an un, uh, unstable isotope, yeah. uh, into something else, right? Yeah. A, a daughter product. Yeah. Now, in, normally when we do geochronology, what we look at is basically the, the, the decay of something that is unstable over time into something that is stable. Right. So parent 
is unstable, daughter is stable. Uh, those two products we usually measure and they're, uh, they're isotopes and we can measure them using sophisticated machines with the, like mass spectrometers. Yeah. Uh, now, as w now when we talk about fission track, actually the product of that decay uh, and process is actually a physical uh, thing that you can see in the crystal of we're talking specific about little minerals, mineral grains. Yep. Uh, they're called apatite. They're phosphate minerals, and they're commonly found in a lot of different rocks. And within those minerals, when uranium decays, uh, it leaves basically these these tracks, these yeah. little you know, um, these these little tracks that they can be seen under a microscope um, after you treat actually your sample in a specific way. And uh, the number of those tracks, which are defect mm -hmm. within the crystal left lattice left over from this process. Um, basically are a function of the age yeah. of the mineral, meaning when this mineral went through a specific temperature within the Earth's crust. Mm -hmm. So um, cooling in, within the Earth's crust can happen in a lot of different ways, um, heating and cooling, right? Yeah. We, can, we have magmatism, volcanoes, and, and yeah. then those form, you know, um, they create a lot of uh, temperature uh, changes mm -hmm. in the crust. Um, so you can have cooling of uh, magma sure. after, you know, you you erupt, you yeah, know. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, but people, you can also... People would recognize that if you see a lava flow. Right. Or if you've seen granite, if you've right. ever been out hiking in mountains if, that have yeah. granite, those used to be melted. They right. were a big magma chamber that then cooled over exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. So now another way of cooling minerals is if you remove material from the surface and you imagine you're a little mineral and you're yeah. sitting at 10 kilometer below the surface right. and all of a sudden those 10 kilometers are removed by erosion either by deformation so faulting and, and tectonics or by a combination of deformation plus precipitation so Rain, climate wind, yeah. and uh, then you're basically all of a sudden your cover is gone and you're cooling yes right yes so people don't maybe understand too that the earth gets warmer as you get deeper Correct. So if yeah, it's like having a cover on right, top of you, and right. you have like three covers, and as you remove those covers, you're cooling. You're cooling. Um, and so that's basically what we're looking at. Uh, we're looking at the product of uh, of that cooling yeah. that is leaving those tracks in in the crystal lattice, yeah. and then so you measure those tracks physically, and that is a function of of their age of when they actually cooled right and so then you can make the assumption that cooling happened due to erosion and then you can date erosion right that's basically how we just make the connection between between in this case thermochronology which is basically dating temperature changes the temperature change yeah. so the cooling history of a rock into when erosion happened yeah so. which is so to me that's such a beautiful little trick that scientists figured out, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, erosion is, it's an event. Mm -hmm. It's not a physical thing that you can pick up and say, oh, we'll figure out the date, right? It's something you're reconstructing right. over time. So mm -hmm. you need all these different tools. You have to tools. have proxy. That's that right, to put it back to together. And correct. so when we talk about these physical tracks, um, one thing you talked about was radioactive decay. Right. And again, I'm not sure people maybe could picture this, but if you think about an atom that's unstable, when it, when it decays, physically that atom is splitting it's changing right. it's, it's changing its structure or something yes. is changing within the, the right. within the yeah the structure and those the. tracks are actually showing you that those things 
they went through fission, mm-hmm. right, which is basically mm-hmm. like a splitting, like mm-hmm. a breaking apart of the yep. nucleus of that yep. atom, and that it leaves behind a physical track in the mineral yep. itself. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can see them, number one, is crazy. Yeah. Um, but if you think about it, the longer that mineral's been around, the more of those will be in right. the grain. And so that's what you're talking about, that those tracks are a function of the age right. of that mineral. Yeah. Um, but at some point, it gets cool enough that this, they that just are frozen. stable, and so they're yes. basically preserving all the tracks and and nothing is happening anymore so when they're above a certain temperature which is in this case is about 60 degrees c Mm -hmm. which if you translate it into depth in in the earth's crust is about three kilometers as soon as they get to that depth nothing is happening anymore unless there is a heating event of some sort like there is magmatism again and or there is a big um deposition on top of your sample and then it gets buried and they can they get hot again and then they cool again so you can actually track the entire history temperature yeah. history of a sample by just looking at the at, at their um the fishing tracks that are tracks yeah. preserved in appetites and or zircons I and mean, there are different minerals that you can actually date yeah um and then you can look at their lengths you know the length of the tracks they will they tell you how fast that process happened so oh, it's wow. not just a number but it's right. the, the length of those tracks are are a function of um, the speed of the cooling and so how fast erosion happened for example so you can right. you can say a lot of things about processes physical processes um, back in time in geological time that yeah. happen at the earth's you know surface or in sure. the upper crust so let's say the top five yeah. Yeah, kilometers yeah, yeah. So. and rate is one of those things mm-hmm. we talk about a lot I talk about it in my gen ed class all mm-hmm. the time because we you know, um, it's one of the things that comes up with climate change where people will say, well, in the past, Earth has been as hot or it's mm-hmm, had mm-hmm. as much CO2. And it's like, okay, there may be times in Earth's past when temperature was higher or whatever, but right. it's the rate of increase exactly. that's happening today that is so it's alarming. Never been seen. Yeah. Right. right. And when we think about erosion events, there are times in Earth's history when in certain places erosion's happening really, really fast or maybe right. really slow, and that that can be extrapolated and tell us something about climate conditions or tell us about tectonics that Mm -hmm. were happening at the time right and so again the putting all these pieces together to get a bigger story it's not just about a rock right right you know because I've had people say that to me you're a geologist you study rocks I mean why do you care about rocks but it's so much more than just the rock right it's telling you these amazing stories and in fact I I do you know the best part of my I would say my science is is working with colleagues who do different things they're complementary but but they're adding new pieces to the puzzle Mm -hmm. As, as you said I'm interested in looking at paleoenvironmental conditions at the time when that erosional event happened, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. And which kind of plants did you have? Which kind of animals did you have? So I work with paleontologists and I have a good friend who works with me, with me in a lot of my projects to look at really the paleoenvironmental condition and paleoclimate condition at the right. time. And so we can put everything together and start answering questions about was it tectonics or was it climate, you know, and how did the two interact to really shape landscape right. and and form, you know, the rocks that we see today. So it's a yeah. lot of things that happen together like we see today, right? Yes. It's never just one thing. It's, a, yeah. it's just trying to figure out the relative contribution of different processes over geological time. And some of those things contributed to, like, mass extinctions in the past, right? right? And so mm-hmm. now we're on the precipice of another one, right? Mm-hmm. And we're talking mm-hmm. about how, how many species are dying related right. to global warming. And and if we can understand mass extinctions from the past, that could help us maybe understand how we can 
prevent mass extinction here in the future, mm-hmm. potentially, but also what might some of the consequences be that were right. unintended or that right. we haven't thought about. Right. Um, and I love this idea of, you know, when you look at life and how life on Earth relates mm-hmm. to tectonics as well mm-hmm. as climate, that they're all interconnected. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a natural, it's a natural thing to think about how tectonics or mountains could affect climate, right? Mm-hmm. You put up a big mountain belt, it's like a big wall and right. it changes wind and all these right. things. But we're learning through your work and others in our department that that um, that we can actually see the opposite, right? Where wind can drive tectonics or climate can actually influence what's happening to the rocks. Right. Which you wouldn't necessarily think about. Right, yeah. yeah. Because if you remove a lot of material from the surface through erosion, mm-hmm. and let's say that is driven mostly by climate change over right. in the past, and uh, then you're basically throwing off the balance of that mountain and sure. so topographic response to that and yeah. so that that will create actually deformation and tectonics will sort of change because of that so it's definitely a feedback yeah. relationship yeah it goes both way and yeah. so that's the question is really what drives what and it's not maybe really what drives what it's not some some periods of time is more tectonics and others is definitely climate is playing a larger role and yeah. so it's just understanding again the relative contributions of the two yeah uh, that is important to understand basically uh, the modern really sure, record that's, sure. that's the only thing we have is is uh, in, or, in order to fully understand the modern and predict the future, the key is to understand the past. You right. know, we have the record right there of millions of years of processes. Yeah, and we know that geologic processes today are the same ones that have always mm-hmm. operated. Physics um, is the same as not changed. That's right. <laughs> Water always went downhill. That's right. right. <laughs> Water always went downhill. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's so fascinating, though. It's just this great way that we can sort of, like you say, connect the present to the past and then make some predictions mm-hmm. about what might happen in the future. Right. Um, so tell me a little bit about um, some of your field experiences because you're someone who, like me, um, has spent a lot of time outdoors mm-hmm. and in the field doing mm-hmm. field geology, isn't necessarily something that's always been female-friendly um, or a welcoming place for women, although I think we're a lot better off today than maybe we were you know, decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've had some experiences going to places that were interesting and mm-hmm. maybe difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about some of those places yeah. that you've been. Well, so my uh, when I started doing significant field work, I mean, I did field work since the beginning, but you know, field work in Europe is not the same as field work, let's say, in, in South America sure. or Asia. Um, so I really started doing serious field work um, when I moved uh, to do my postdoc and I started working in the Andes. And I would mm-hmm. spend... Um, up to sometimes I had field seasons that it were when you combine all the different field seasons up to five months in the field right. and that involved basically sleeping in a tent and cooking your own food and driving your vehicle and being basically isolated from from people you sure. know? so I had a field assistant and 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 we would just go off and, and just do geology all day and that would go on for months and then you just come home and then go to next you know field season so um, and I was necessarily, I was not brought up to camp. So yeah, I think neither. actually the students in our department specifically, but in general in the U.S. are more, they have more opportunities to um, to do outdoor things mm-hmm. because because of because of your, we are in in the in the West mm-hmm. and and so there are a lot of uh, amazing places that you can go and camp and and, and be in the mountains and be out and be in the mountains. Whereas in Europe is much more it's busier so it's it's more difficult and there are yeah. not as many opportunities to really camp unless you camp in a campground which is completely different, different. Than camping you know oh, on yeah. your own mm-hmm. out in you know in 
in uh, sort of middle of nowhere. So that was sort of a, but I, I didn't feel like it was, I, always, I, I kind of went into it and I sort of adjusted pretty quickly. Yeah. Maybe because I was always sort of, I always loved to be out there on mm. my own. Um, and so I just didn't feel like it was necessarily a, a big step uh, going from, let's say, doing a field season where you mo- mostly sleep in hotels mm-hmm. or, or bed and breakfast into a field season that is mostly tent. tent. And uh, now the, the beauty of, of it takes a while to adjust. I think it takes about a week, you know. I mean, if you only do one week of field season, I, I will say it's probably not worth just going into sure. the old camping experience because it's a lot of work, right, yes. at the beginning. But then you get adjusted and you realize how little you really need. And then you go to sleep at 7 and you sleep for 12 hours. And then you wake up and you're actually not tired. And then you work physically, which is great. And you're not stressed out. And so when you're tired and you go to sleep, it's because you're physically tired Tired. but not mentally tired. And so there is a beauty associated with doing field work that is not just collecting data and doing science, but it's also like it connects I think humans to nature and that's where we come from and you know we sort of lose that connection we have lost that connection um you know a long time ago and I feel like a lot of people don't really have that connection they don't have the um opportunity to really experience what that means and you know and I do have a lot of friends who are not geologists or not scientists and have never camped and they will never do it and they they think we're crazy right but I think and, and you know I, I understand you know it's it's uh, again it's there is a lot of challenges like sure. okay where do you go to the bathroom how right. do you wash yourself and right. the quite the answer is that you find a bush or a, a, or yeah. a tree and you go to the bathroom right. and you just don't sometimes wash, wash yourself for a, while, <laughs> for a long time you know yeah and uh it's not actually that bad yeah uh, so yeah. it's <laughs> well it's, it's funny kind of liberating in yes way. and it's I'm so glad you say that because I get that too like if I talk about my experience in Tibet you know it was almost four months the first time I went and talk about the middle of nowhere and there isn't a bush or a rock you can go behind to go to the bathroom and you don't have any opportunity to, to clean you know take a shower or bath or anything and people in my life would say why would you want to do that it's so crazy I think there's a fear for some people because they you haven't when you haven't experienced it right you think how am I going to live without and you think of all the things that you're so used to that you need whether it's your you know your shower or your bed or whatever and I had some of that fear going in because I wasn't a camper Mm -hmm, I'd never done mm -hmm. any of that stuff but it didn't take long for me to just be like oh this is just another way of living and it's absolutely freeing and liberating Mm -hmm. it is liberating there's no television screen there's no I didn't have to drive we had drivers so there's no driving there's no traffic there's no alarm clock in the morning. Right. There's no, um, oh gosh, I have to get to bed because I have a meeting. And right. Mor- you, like you say, we went to bed because we were tired and we woke up because we were ready to wake up. And then it was all just about being outdoors mm-hmm. and doing, looking at rocks and taking measurements. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. But no, it wasn't stressful. No, it's not. Which is amazing to me because it's so out of your comfort zone. You'd right. think it would be really stressful right. and it's not. No, it is one of the best things. And in fact, right now, I'm missing <laughs> being in the field. I know. When's like the last time go. you went? Uh, it was May last year, and it's a long time ago. Where did you so go in May? Argentina. Argentina. Yeah. So, you know, to go back to your questions about other places that were more maybe more challenging for women, um, you know, South America is a relatively easy place to work, and it's a wonderful place to work, and I, it's one of my favorite places. But And let me interject there. You're also working. There's um, there's a plateau there right. called the Puna 
Plateau, mm-hmm. which is not as big or as high as Tibet, the Tibetan Plateau, but it's still, it's high five, elevation. It's about four to five kilometer high. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty similar to elevations you find in Tibet, not the maximum. High. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so it's, it's extreme in terms of environment. It can be, sure. uh, for some people, debilitating. You know, some people don't handle elevation very well, and, and there's nothing you can do. So sure. it's, it's a matter of how your body can handle that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but again, you get used to being up there. If you do it right, and you acclimate properly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's actually my favorite place because, yeah, it is kind of, it's very similar to Tibet. I've been to Tibet too. It's very right. similar. Uh, I will say sometimes it's even more extreme in terms of uh, the places that I worked in the Pune. They're very isolated and it's windy and there are no roads and you don't have drivers. So, you know, that's the other thing about difference, you know, from Tibet is that you have a crew and yeah. you kind of have to have the drivers and then you have to have this big truck to carry all your stuff and the food. And the beauty of working in the Andes for me has always been that I fly there and I rent my own vehicle and I just go go where you want to go and I usually am with one one colleague and field assistant students and yeah. it's a small group of yeah. two to four people and mm-hmm. you're totally independent so that is kind of beautiful because yeah. you don't have to deal with any of that right. logistical stuff sure. and so there is no downtime and you're in there for yeah. like even if you have 10 days you can actually do a lot of work yeah. versus Asia is a different story especially yeah. Tibet it takes you so long that if you don't have five weeks you four can't. days just to yeah. drive to where we wanted to go yeah, and you, you just have can't. drivers mm-hmm. which as you say you're a little bit at their mercy because sometimes you say we want to go there and they, oh it can't be done Right. And there's not roads either. Like, they right. have to be willing to take some mm-hmm. risks. And we were very lucky. We had wonderful drivers. But um, the, the upside of that is that you're living with these Tibetans. Right, right. And they become, like, your family. Yeah, you're part and of the group. And we had so much fun sure. with them. Yeah. But you definitely lose a little bit of right. autonomy there. Yeah. yeah. And But the, on the plus side of... Um, uh, yeah, so there, are be- you know, there's beauty in doing field work in a lot of different places. Yeah. Uh, working in the Andes, that taught me how to change tires. You know, yeah. figure out how to fix your car if it's not working because there's no one around, and yeah. so things that usually wouldn't. So if my car were to break down here, I wouldn't panic. Right. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, other places that were a little more challenging was uh, working in the Pamir of Tajikistan, which is north of Afghanistan. Yeah. And west of China and south of Kyrgyzstan. And that's a challenging place in the sense that um, culturally uh, is is very welcoming, mm-hmm. but you know, the position of women in that society is very different than sure. what we're used to. Mm-hmm. And so they are not used to having women that usually are in position of power. And so right. you actually never see women uh, unless you are invited inside and they're usually behind doors. You know, yeah. it's it's a completely different uh, situation and cultural, you know, organization where women and men are very are separate. separate. They're mm-hmm. not together. And so I uh, basically we had this team of scientists and I was the only female. Right. Uh, and I was kind of the leader of the project. Sure. And so I was the one who was telling the drivers where to go. And it sure. took a while, not a while, but a, maybe a week to figure out what the, how the dynamics were and for them to understand that they, you know, I was the one who was kind of telling, telling them where, them where, to, where go, to go, what to do. <laughs> yeah. But I was impressed how quickly that, you know, happened. Yeah. And um, they all kind of got into that new way of, d- mode of doing things. Sure. And, and it was wonderful. I mean, I, I 
Tajikistan, I would say, is my second favorite place mm-hmm. to work. I, I love the culture, and it's an amazing place, and I love to go back. And But it's culturally very different. So, you know, you sort of – and the, so the beauty there is also not, not just the geology, but learning about the, the, a different culture, you sure. know, how, how different people live. But um, Did you ever feel unsafe in any of the places you've worked? No. no. Actually, uh, they, they are incredibly – uh, welcoming. Really? And in fact, I remember one night there was a big storm and we couldn't camp. Uh, actually, it was late and we couldn't find camp. And so we ended up in this village and um, they opened for us a mosque to sleep in. Oh, wow. And they said, you, you're welcome to stay here. We'll have service tomorrow at six, so you'll have to leave early, but you yeah. know, you're welcome. And they didn't, you know, they didn't even ask who we were or nothing wow. like that. They just let us sleep in the mosque. And so that's something that I don't know how many Westerners really appreciate about that part of the world you know we have a lot of ideas on how that things work out there but you know unless you really experience those cultures yourself you're really not you really don't know um and so my experience there has always been very positive welcoming people have never felt unsafe yeah having said that you know politically is uh you never know you know you Mm -hmm. kind of go in and sometimes um you don't know what might happen politically and you might get stranded but you know from personal point of view I never felt like I was in a in a position a risky position or I, yeah. or I was unsafe it's yeah. so important to share those stories because we in this country we all we hear right now is the negative mm-hmm. right and we're bombarded with all these horrible stories and images that are meant to make people afraid to push a, I think a political agenda right so if we make people afraid right. we can do things we want to do and people who have experienced these things firsthand these cultures these people consistently say I didn't feel unsafe they're wonderful people you know so to just remember that we're all humans and we all have this humanity and it doesn't matter where you are right right? that you can connect with other people yeah I think is such an important message in geology man are we lucky we get these opportunities to go places that you would never go yeah yeah Yeah. you know one thing that i Again, talking about Tajikistan, that is amazing to me, and and that's the same with places like Nepal and yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are they're really poor. You mm-hmm. know, they really don't have anything. Uh, is the poorest country in um, in Central Asia, mm-hmm. and um, despite that, you know, they will open their doors and give you anything they have for lunch, yeah. for example. Oh, if yeah. you're if you're the guest, that they will just do everything for you. Right, and and that's a kind of an eye-opener you know you come back with those experiences and you're thinking wow I'm just so selfish right the way <laughs> I, I actually <laughs> live my life yeah because yeah here I am I just came back from this trip where people don't even know me and they just were so welcoming and I and you know sure I don't really get that many chances to do that so yeah. that's definitely uh yeah those are in- incredible experiences uh, yes yeah. experiences another tough place to tough from from um a different point of view, I would say the most difficult place I've worked in is Nepal. Mm. And that's because the pos- there, um, it's similar to Tajikistan in the sense that women in society have a completely different position. Sure. But in Nepal, it's even more extreme. And mm. it, it, is, it is in your face, and you can't get away from that. Mm. So, you know, you're basically there to do science, and you're trying not to get sucked in. But at the same time, you do see women... And you do understand that their conditions are miserable, yeah. and there's nothing you can do. And that has crashed me for the you know the three times I was there, and I is one of those places where it just really does affect my state of mind, you know. And, sure. and I just cannot isolate the two. Sure. And so that's kind of uh, 
the, again, the geology is fantastic. The people are great. I mean, Nepal, but, you're right in the Himalayas, so that's yeah, what, that's the is, appeal. But it is but, a difficult place from and that so point of view. You find it that you're less um, drawn to go back there because you know what you're going to see. Yeah, I tried again. I tried to just do my job and isolate the things, and I've been back, and and I'm planning to go back. Um, but yeah, it is it is one. It's not an easy place, and yeah. I still to this date don't quite have a recipe to to just do it so that it doesn't affect me that much. You know, you you're there and you you want to do something, but mm-hmm. it's not your job. You can't right. Is you can't, you can't change everything. Right. You can't do things that are just outside of your power. You know, there are things you cannot change right. and. Right. Yeah, you can do small things, but it's not good yeah. to change the situation. And so that's tough, yeah. I remember experiencing this in Tibet in a different way, just seeing how poor people were and, like, being in Lhasa and seeing these women on the street with their children and they'd have nothing. And, you know, the men that – I was also the only woman when I went on that expedition, and the men in my group would say, you know, don't give them anything and don't make eye contact. And it breaks your heart because right. these are human beings. Um, I really felt for them because being a woman and I see a woman on the street with a baby on her back and she has no food. It's like you want to feed this person and, you know, give them money. That's going to get them through today. It's not going to get them through tomorrow. But you still feel like you want to do it. Um, But I also remember being out in the middle of nowhere and having these Tibetan nomads who literally all they have is a yak wool Mm -hmm. tent and their animals that they Mm -hmm. herd and their family. They have very few possessions. And they would invite you into their Mm -hmm. tent and they would give you yak butter tea and they would give you whatever they had you know steamed Mm -hmm, bread mm -hmm. and goat yogurt that they made that morning from the goat milk you know and you would take it because it would be rude not to and you think gosh these people have nothing I don't want to take their tea or take that but that was their way of welcoming you into their home Um, and here in America we're like we don't even like it when someone shows up at our house unannounced like a friend or a family (laughs) member shows up at our door unannounced and we don't like it it's messing your plan yeah Yeah. it's messing your plan it's (laughs) intrusive but you're thinking wow these people live in a tent and they're inviting me in and giving me tea you know it's unbelievable Mm -hmm. so where are you headed next like what are what is your big project right now well so we just got funded for Nepal so Uh uh my fellow colleagues are going in yeah. April, but mm-hmm. because of my, my new position in the department, I can't really leave for a month. So I'm yeah, you're our new chair. On the <laughs> you just on started that. this year. But I'm planning to go back to Argentina if everything goes well in May mm-hmm. for maybe a couple of weeks. Yeah. So that's kind of the plan right mm-hmm. now. And then I uh, I would love to go back to Tajikistan maybe in the fall if mm. I can make it work. But yeah. that, those kind of are the plans. And then Nepal will be next year. Yeah. Because this is a three-year project, so it's going to go on for three years. And I'm just sort of letting them go for the first first year, but then I definitely plan to go back. So Yeah. I think that um, it's another great thing about geology that people may not realize is if you're a geologist, part of your job is to do right. these things. If yes, you do to be out work. there, yeah. So, you know, you're talking about going in the spring, going in the fall. It's like you teach classes, you work, you have a full-time job, but part of that job is that you get to build in time right. to go to these amazing mm-hmm. places and do science. Mm-hmm. What could be better if you like yeah. the outdoors and like traveling, right? Yeah. It's an amazing It's always thing. shocking to come back, though, because then you have, yeah. uh, you have this simple life, and, yeah, you worked hard, you know, physically, and then you come back, and all these things are just waiting for you, and then you have to adjust to sleep in your own bed, which seems, right. like, easy, right? But it's not that easy. I know. Um, sometimes I feel more comfortable in a tent, you know. It's kind of strange. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah it's just takes a while to get used to it and I love that I love when you're in the field that you don't have to think about exercising <laughs> like right. everything you do you're hiking like 10 yes. 12 15 so miles a day these, right? you don't need a Fitbit no. you don't need no. to go to, to the tell gym you, you need to take a walk I know. I mean, isn't it sad that that's what most of us are doing is we're like, maybe I should stand up from my desk for a minute. Maybe I should go take a walk around the building. And when you're in the field, it's like every day you're walking everywhere and you don't have to think about it. So it's one of those professions that's not just good for the mind, but good for the soul and the body. Yeah. All of those things. I think geology is special in that way. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we've had a good talk, and I'm really glad to have had you as a guest and talk a little bit about geology because it's my favorite thing, too. Um, And I want to thank you again for coming. Thank you. This is really, really exciting. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. (laughs) Plucky Ladies Podcast is recorded in the studios of the Office of Digital Learning at the University of Arizona. Special thanks to the team for recording, sound editing, and photography. You can catch all episodes of Plucky Ladies on SoundCloud, iTunes, and on my website, jesscap.com. That's J-E-S-S-K-A-P-P.com, and click the tab labeled The Podcast. Send me a message with your Plucky story, and it might be featured on a future episode. Subscribe to Plucky Ladies Podcast and come along on all of my journeys into female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence.